to the lost souls, the disintegrated spirits, the wanderers, the dreamers, and the seekers. Welcome to the Embodied Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Danielle McGinnis. Our work in this podcast will be to foster healing, transformation, self-expression, creativity, and the development of consciousness. So with our intentions grounded firmly, let's settle in and do some integration work. Hey everyone, my name is Rick Alexander and I am once again joined by my partner, Dr. Danielle McGinnis. And today on a Deep End podcast, we are going to talk about the Netflix series Midnight Mass. We're going to talk about some of the symbols, archetypes, patterns, motifs that we saw. And I should say before we get into this conversation that there's going to be some spoilers. So if you're planning on watching it and haven't, you may want to skip this episode um, because we're definitely going to talk about how it ends. And it's really interesting how they, I think the thing that I noticed that I was really, really interested in was the fact that they overlaid so many different like mythological tropes on top of each other and use that to tell a coherent story. I think there were some parts where at least I noticed like there were some incoherences in the storyline, but to lay the biological myth on top of the like what like Dracula myth on top of the Christ myth and there's some of the the Islam in there. There's so much so many different myths on top of each other. I think the writer did a really good job of laying those on top of each other. Uh, do you have any opening kind of statements? Yeah, so I listened to, I think that was probably my favorite part of the series. I mean, I would give it like a 10 out of 10. It was captivating. It, it's very easily like a binge app so, so, or a binge series. Mm-hmm. So like... It's a mini series. There's seven episodes. Yeah, so I mean, it's seven hours long, but I think you could for sure binge it in one day if you <laughs> wanted to. Um, but I was watching an interview with the director who wrote, produced, directed the whole series and he kind of based it off his own like personal experience of religious trauma in a Mm. small town and it was him and one of the executive producers they were doing an interview and the executive producer said your faith is a signpost of who you are and so is your fear and the show looks at both of those things and he said that the ethos of the show is to ask questions and to not give answers Mm. and I feel like the way the show was set up that there were so many different perspectives like each character kind of had their own faith and fear and that was really amplified throughout the the series i thought so i thought it was like beautifully written yeah i think the best writers don't make their characters wholly good or wholly bad and it's like just like us who we as we think about our own stories consider ourselves to be probably a positive actor in our own stories but we know damn well we're not all good yeah so i think that it gets more into the struggle of real life when that is the case yeah and one of the things that the director mentioned that when he was writing this he said he's been writing this his whole life basically when he was a young altar boy in his church and like watching this you know the eucharist in in mass and 
like watching people drink the he's like it's not the wine he's like people are literally drinking the blood of christ and as a younger boy he had read i guess the like the famous dracula stories and he said that just like in his young mind it was like there's so many parallels between what he's seeing in church and this dracula story and so um it was interesting because you were the one that brought up like the vampiric element of it. Mm-hmm. I didn't actually think that that's where the show was going, but it kind of went down that route. And then to hear the director say that that's what the story was based upon in his young adolescent mind is really interesting. Yeah, because it's so interesting how the vampire myth overlays on the Antichrist in like such a um in so many different ways it's like because in in some sense do you want to get into that part of it now do you want to just jump into that okay because i think we should talk about the protagonist a bit too like he like riley yeah like essentially this the the scene opens he was drunk and hits a girl and kills her and then he goes to prison and then after prison he he's essentially tormented by by the fact that he had done this, right? That he'd had no recollection of it. He just remembers her lying there dead and that comes to him every single night, which is, you know, essentially how our traumas do come to us. Yeah. If you look at the opening scene of the whole series, it opens and it has his car, mm-hmm. like Riley's car, and it has like the the Jesus fish symbol. Like it, ha- it starts out with that, and then it shows the girl, and then it has him like saying this prayer, and then I think the cop says something akin to like, you know, while you're at it, like go ahead and ask him why the assholes always live and the good people die or something. Right, and so from literally from the jump, there's this paradoxical um, kind of tension that's set up. Um, coming back to what the director said that like the story is about what happens when good people are cut off from the world so he was raised on this island and then went out into the world and having to contend with the corruption of a belief system Mm. and I think that's what the whole motif is about and you see that from like literally the opening scene is like it's a consequence of him contending with his goodness badness the corrupt world the corruption inside of himself like it's really powerful right and so it's interesting so he goes to prison and later in a monologue he kind of says like you know when i was in prison i really looked like i read you know the quran and i read all the Mm -hmm. the hindu books and i read the bible and like I, i was really searching and he landed on there's nothing and except for reason right and that's kind of like that's the that's the Western, essentially, that what what uh, Polly Young Eisendrath would call the myth of biological salvation. That we mm-hmm. can, and that myth is overlaid on all of this too. It comes out in a few different ways, but it seems like what they're setting up for is the the war between reason and religious thought, and that ends up not being like fully the war that's taking place. But it is the play, the war that's taking place in him early, and you know, on this podcast, you and I were talking, and I was like. I heard one time Richard Rohr say, like he was talking to an atheist person. He was like, I don't, I don't think you're atheist. I think you're just cynical. And when he goes on his rant about how, why there is no God, it seems like that's the vein. I mean, I could have, 
I could, I mean, when I think about me in my 20s, like going through deployments, losing a best friend, losing my faith, I could have given you like that monologue was like straight from my heart in my 20s. So it was very fascinating to see. I was like, man, that's it. And mm-hmm. so it, it's like that cynicism when you're in a world that seems corrupt and you have that same corruption inside of yourself, that cynicism seems like the only way to order it, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, something, again, coming back to like what the director said, he said it is the human decision that drives the fate of the story. And if you really think about that, right, the whole story is like kind of, you know, this whole island who is thinks that believes that they're faithful people and they kind of condemn Riley they're like he's the least reliable mm-hmm. one on the island right and it's like I think that perspective of that rational perspective just kind of it's now where like he's the story maker right he's like trying to drive his own fate without the help of something greater than himself and that isn't that what Nietzsche meant when like the God is dead thing. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's like, we see what happens when that's the case, but then we see what happens when the faith is just this kind of disembodied principle too. So you see like kind of the polar ends of like rationalism and then like the ideology of religion. Mm hmm. What I love about the storyline is it brings everybody to the end point of being human to the point where there's like nothing left and you just have to make a decision one way or the other. Mm -hmm. And so Riley ends up becoming the Christ figure because he sacrifices himself to the light first. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, yeah, it's very interesting how that takes place. So then what happens is there's a priest who goes on a pilgrimage to the Wailing Wall and he's on his way back and he gets lost. Can you explain what like that? is like that place like it's is it in jerusalem yeah it's like the remainders of a wall of a retaining wall in jerusalem and it has different meanings depending on the faith that you're that you come from but it's a holy place it's a holy place right but the holy place is fought over between like islam and judaism and christianity but in any case um so he goes to this wailing wall he's not he's kind of at the end of his life he's senile he's like kind of um there's like dementia and there's other stuff going on. And on his way back, he gets lost on the road to Damascus, right? And so... What's the road to Damascus? Well, in the New Testament, the road to Damascus is where Saul, who's like a persecutor of Christians at the time, actually they're not even called Christians, they're called the way, right? Christ just died 20 years before this. Okay. Saul is walking to go persecute people and he gets essentially overtaken by this incandescent light that knocks him off of his feet and blinds him for three days. He has to actually get help to make it into the city. On this road. On this road to Damascus. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is when he gets hit with this sort of like presence, Christ comes to him and says like, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? And essentially that's his awakening, right? That's his moment Mm -hmm. of... of, um, of of coming to truth you could say or coming to jesus as we would say okay right? so that's kind of the motif is like he's on this road and this is his quote-unquote coming to jesus moment right yeah the so priest. the okay. priest is on this trip and he ends up wandering and getting lost from the pack and then a dust storm comes like windstorms in the middle east are gnarly like i i 
I watched one kill a couple people. They're insane. Um, and so these windstorms like kick up. Now, what's interesting is this windstorm starts kicking up and he finds a cave and he goes into the cave and there's this like demonic creature in there who ends up, it ends up being a vampire essentially, but bites him. But he, as he's telling this story of this event, he calls it an angel. Yeah, and like, well, at first he's scared. I think he he recognizes, he comes to the realization, and this is interesting too, because whatever your story is, whatever like you've been raised with for a story, you're going to use that to then make sense of what your life presents you with in the future, Mm -hmm. right? And so when anytime like in the Bible where angels are encountered, there's like great fear from the people. And so he uses that to kind of rationalize his own fear in the face of this demon, the face of this creature, because what happens is this creature bites him. Oh, and I should say too, there's an overlay of Islam here too, because the prophet Muhammad essentially goes into this cave and an angel actually ends up being Gabriel, I believe, comes to him and ends up revealing the whole Quran, the whole Islam faith. He ends up being... Well, if you're Islam, you would consider him to be the final prophet after Jesus. And so like the whole, there's there's Islamic people in the show, which is interesting because they're doing the, I can't remember what it's called, but the ritual of prayer that they do, which was shown to Muhammad in this cave by Gabriel. But he describes it in much the same way, like he was scared and no matter where he, he couldn't get away from him. And so that sort of same thing is happening with this preacher in Midnight Mass. So then he, he bites him. And then he essentially, he starts the process of turning himself. Like he starts becoming a vampire, um, but he's not fully, you know, he's not fully there for whatever reason, it seems like, because he can still go into the light and all of this. Yeah. So I kind of like read a little bit about that kind of confusion about like, well, why does the priest, how is he able to be in the light for so long? And it was because there was like a specific like amount, like he was like that presence that vampire follows him to this island right and just continues to feed Mm -hmm. and so at the moment of him being in this cave and then going back to the island like there's still elements of his his essence like he's not fully transformed at that point okay right that's why i kind of assumed yeah but so when the priest wakes up after being fed on by this demon he's young again and so he's got like the vigor of youth. And so you can imagine like he's dedicated his whole life to reading the Bible and preaching the Bible in Catholic mass. Now all of a sudden he gets new life, right? And and so, and he, and it kind of shows like what the world looks like through their eyes once they're transformed into this. And it has this sort of like mystical consciousness feel to it. So for, so he thinks that he's in the midst of the, the, uh, new creation like he's the resurrection yeah Yeah, right and so he ends up essentially leading this thing back to his island and he comes back to the island he's so young that people don't even recognize it's still him he tells a story that he's been brought in to replace them or whatever a couple people older people recognize him and that kind of develops as the story goes on Um, but I think right there it's just so fascinating one how many different myths kind of get overlaid right there Mm -hmm. and two this idea that like we will take our past stories and use them to rationalize our present happenings is really fascinating to me. Well, I think a lot of the paradox throughout the whole story, and it's 
again, starts from the beginning, from the Riley scene, but it's here too. It's this paradoxical tension between, like, healing and death. Like, there's the, there's just, like, elements of death throughout the whole series, and that's, like, this scene in the cave too it's like you think that he dies Mm -hmm. like i was so confused at this part of the series because i'm like what is happening but that's the motif it is the death rebirth motif right and so there is this kind of like healing within the death thing happening throughout and i think that that's the impulse that he's taking back to the island where where he's like been through this death rebirth experience and there's like this they call it like the crock pot that's the island yeah it's a crockett island they're so cut off from the world and the these people are just like there's so there's deadness the the way it's filmed is like it's always gray and like there's just not a lot of life on this small island and i think he's taking that rebirth experience back to the island yeah to to, like revivify it yeah to basically have it be reborn in the way that he's reborn. But I don't think that he understands at this moment what's actually happening. Yeah, because I think we like both decided, like I think his heart is actually good. Like he actually wanted to serve light and didn't realize the degree to which he was like lost. Well, I think that happens like in our modern culture too. And when when people go on these massive like transformative experiences mm-hmm. and don't take the time to sit and integrate it, and then they project it onto the people around them. You see this all the time with plant medicines or new Christians. <laughs> right? Yeah, I know. Right, where it's like you had this transformative experience, and then you're expecting everybody else to have the same thing, and then it's like it's not integrated yet. It's very like raw, and that can be because what we I think what we agreed upon as we like noticed the steer the series evolving is like this what was touching into an archetypal vampiric presence started to become more like a possession mm-hmm. as opposed to an archetypal experience. Yeah, because they're possessed by the hunger. Right. Right. Yeah. They, and they like hunger for blood essentially. Right. And he's almost the only one that like really knows he's like starting to learn how to like wield that power Mm -hmm. but so many people are dying in the process right right and it's interesting because that's kind of the lie of darkness right is that you it will give you what you want what you actually seek whether that's belonging or whatever and what you actually get is this insatiable hunger that the more you give into it the less of you you have it like steals your essence this hunger Mm-hmm. Right, and I think any addiction is that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was interesting. And I think that's that's the the hunger element. I think that's part of that's like unconsciously in all of these people on the island. That's why the the series turns cult like, mm-hmm. right? Is because these people are so dead inside that they're hungry for this revivification for life. They see that. They see it happening slowly throughout the series. This priest is like causing different miracles to happen. And I think it's the hunger of those who aren't affected. That's what kind of pulls them towards the possession. Mm-hmm. They start drinking 
poison, right. basically. Right, right. And so we should talk about Bev, too, because, like, oh, yeah. her righteousness is something that's very interesting, right? So she's like a, I don't know, a nun or something in this church. She's like the right-hand person to this pastor. And she's, like, very self-righteous, like, nothing is good. It's like nothing's good enough for her. Only her is like good enough or something. It's very interesting, but you just see how her, you know, this is the like thing about self-righteousness is that like there's this deep darkness in them. There's this like, and then what happens as the plot goes on is that this sort of darkness gets a chance to manifest. Like it gets a chance. It like takes her over fully, essentially. The word that I associated with her because it is associated in some like Christian text as hubris, mm-hmm. right? And like, um, yeah, I did some studying one. on hubris last, well, no, last year actually. And as I was kind of researching about it, I was hearing Jordan Peterson talk about the overlays with, is it Jacob's ladder? Maybe. Is that a thing in the yeah. Bible? Uh huh. Yeah, bridges. Essentially, Jacob has a dream where he sees these angels ascending to heaven and coming back down. And so symbolically, that's kind of the, that's the path of the seer, right? The shaman that can look into both realms. And so that's being symbolized right there. Well, I think that there's something perverted in Bev Keen with that. Mm -hmm. I think she thinks that she is the seer. Right, she's the link. She is the link to heaven, right? Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so she's the one that, and she's the only one, too, because at a certain part, um, a character on the island calls her out and is like, "Your God doesn't love you more than anybody else. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that that part was so good because it was like kind of a slap in the face at her hubris. So it was like kind of the first kind of like, hey, wake up. But then... She obviously ignores it. Right. Well, actually, though, it's not worded like that because it's worded differently. She says, like, God loves Riley as much as God loves you. And so it's this, like, it's this recognition of equality in God's eyes that she can't, like, stomach. And I think a thing that you see through with this character in particular is her inability to be inclusive, Mm -hmm. right? There's something exclusive that, like, she's othering herself from other people on this island from her authority um you can see the polarity between her and this really kind of downtrodden um alcoholic to like town alcoholic right and then you see her other herself to the muslim police officer in just these like really low-key jabs that she makes at people to like put herself as like a better than thou Mm -hmm. is so disgusting to watch yeah but that is that self-righteous sort of attitude and you see it a lot honestly in religions i think oh i i think so i think it's it's moral righteousness it's like i'm good and you're bad Mm -hmm. or not as good as me right i mean that plays itself out at the end where she won't even feed on the Muslim guy's blood because mm-hmm. he has dirty blood. Mm-hmm. And that ends up hurting her as well. Yeah. By then, the nail's in the coffin. Like, it's just a matter of time. But yeah. Yeah, that that was a really interesting character to put in there. It's like, man, I the whole time you're just like, this chick is 
the worst. She <laughs> is awful. They did such an amazing job yeah. of her persona. So, so what happens is this demon is essentially cutting himself and bleeding into the, it, filling up these like things with blood, which he's then putting into the Eucharist, into the into the wine, which then they serve at communion. And so, what what's happening in the town is all these miracles start happening. This girl who couldn't walk regains the ability to walk and like these people start feeling youthful and what's essentially what's happening there is you know he they're slowly putting this this demonic blood in these people so then they have enough of it so that when they die they come back and that's the idea of like just like any vampire movie like vampire bites you you die and then you come back as the vampire but i think like I never, obviously seeing it overlaid on Catholic mass was like a way to realize like, oh, it's the exact Antichrist. I've never understood the motif fully, but like, it's very interesting because this idea of being a vampire is like, it gives you, it it makes, it's like the lie is, and this is the Antichrist lie. I think what's coming across with the Antichrist is that you can be and have everything that you want like you can be the manipulator of reality you can have eternal life you you don't have to have anything else to do that there's no transcendent other the ego doesn't have to be dethroned in that experience only you can't go near the light so Mm -hmm. it's like you you it like it's like this false promise of what the light offers you without the light without the light right and that's what that's like what the that's like the the deepest desire of the ego right is that i can become all things in myself i don't need without sacrifice without sacrifice right Mm -hmm. yeah and it's interesting because the sacrifice is actually other people's death right the true sacrifice would be what riley did and is to burn up into the light Mm -hmm. right but like that's not happening and so what's interesting is riley gets turned against his will this demon just like he just stumbles upon him. bad timing yeah bites him turns him and it's so fascinating because this is the redemptive aspect of being skeptical, in my opinion. Because what happens is then, you know, Riley wakes up. Now he's this vampire. And the, the priest explains to him everything that's gone down, everything that's happened. And that he's like kind of the first disciple is what they call him. But he's so skeptical that he's just like, you know, they're using all of these religious, all of these scriptural references to justify what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's what we do. I mean, we do that with war. We do that with everything, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting because it's his skepticism that allows him to see through it. And then he ends up realizing that once you're in that place where the darkness has consumed him fully, because now he's fully, you know, transformed, the only option is to die into the light. And that's essentially what what he ends up doing. I also think it's really interesting that, and I think that's why you can't go near the cross too. Like, you know, the cross is kind of, there's a point where the priest is holding a rosary and it like burns in his hand. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I think because it's the same idea, you can't go near the symbolism, like, cause you're, you are the opposite, you are the literal opposite of that symbol, right? Yeah. Well, it's interesting to just kind of, as you're telling this to to witness like how the film like that's the part of the um film the series that all of the mass starts to move to midnight because Mm -hmm. it's gotten to a point where this priest can't be in the light at all Mm -hmm. 
right? And so if we take that like symbolically, right? So there's no like Christ consciousness. There's no light of consciousness. And so now everything's happening in the unconscious. Mm. All of this transformation is happening in the unconscious. And like that, to have no consciousness about you dabbling in unconscious stuff, like that is archetypal possession and that is super dangerous territory. Mm. And I think it's fascinating to have like everything's in the dark pretty much in the series after this point. Yeah, because, you know, the liturgy in all of Mass is set up to titrate the unconscious, mm-hmm. right? That's why, but to do it in a conscious manner. That's the idea of confessing your sins, right? That's the idea of all of that. Like, all of the symbolism in Mass is really about moving into the unconscious, into the archetypal with as much consciousness as possible. Well, it was interesting because I was reading a young um, lecture the other day, and he was saying that's why... Catholics don't need analysis as much as other people because they have so much ritual that it titrates Mm. the unconscious material within them. So it's like digestible, right? Yeah. So it's like they're using all of this perverted ritual in this story. Like everything turns perverted, right? right? Like they change, like it's not just midnight mass at Easter. It's midnight mass every Sunday. Right. 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 And then he starts to like manipulate the way he's doing the service right it turns more of this like instead of his ritualistic catholic event it's now become this like very egocentric yeah evangelical like he's preaching the quote-unquote good news but there's so much like egocentricism yeah he's he's possessed at this point and it just it's interesting because the rituals like really start to like shift and turn as the the mass shifts to like the nighttime and goes into the unconscious. It's like the rituals have become perverted. Dark. Right. Yeah. So it's interesting because there's, there's another overlay. Well, two things. One, when he, so he, the priest, he ends up killing somebody and doesn't, he ends up being overcome with it essentially and ends up drinking their blood. Mm-hmm. But then he doesn't feel any morality about it. And so he takes that as a sign that God had called that person home and that he was supposed to do that. But what I think is interesting is that the absence of morality is, it's not you. If it were Mm. you, there would be, there would be remorse for taking someone's life. The fact that there was no, like, it's like you will have already died. So he's possessed by the, the God or he has become God at that point. He thinks he has. Yeah. He's devoid of right and wrong. Yeah. I definitely, at least, like, what would you say? Like, um, definitely, by the way, if you guys hear, there's no ghost in the background. I don't know if that's coming through <laughs> on the thing, but there's, like, just massive wind blowing by our house today. Um, but he, he becomes inflated to the point where he no longer recognizes the difference between him and God. Right. And I think that's another like like really what they did is exposed all of these like dangers of religious thought, I think, which was really great. Well, it's interesting, too, because coming back to this like interview I watched from the producers, it's like it's not saying that like Christianity is bad or wrong. It's really just amplifying these different experiences of different like 
the kind of atheist perspective and the dangers of that and the Christian perspective and the dangers of that and the Muslim perspective and the dangers of that. And like, it's so interesting how that's so like, I guess, religiously political without Mm -hmm. it's so objective. I don't know how they did that. Yeah, that I agree. Cause I, you know, I went, I left it with the opposite of that. I left it thinking like, well, man, the light is really important, right? Like I, I left it with a really hopeful message of like actually just getting to watch the whole road unravel of darkness. There's another overlay that I wanted to mention with the Antichrist that's really interesting. So if you go back into the Hebrew world in the Old Testament and they had blood sacrifices, the idea with blood sacrifices is that the blood is life, right? That's life force. That's Without blood, you don't have life. But mm-hmm. life belongs to God. And so you're giving back to God what is God's, right? And so there's something really fascinating to me with a vampire that feeds on life force. It's like you take what's God's for yourself, and mm. that's how you sustain it, right? So it's sort of like the ultimate. Um, I keep coming up with egocentrism, but that is essentially what it yeah, seems I'm like. Like, do you think that this this because I, I see this kind of vampire motif play itself out when um, I'm working with clients who have this kind of parent-child dynamic, where their parent they were like an extension of their parents and their parents were feeding on them for their sense of Mm self-worth as opposed to like doing their own inner work and just being there finding the water of life for themselves right right right. and i i do feel like i'm like well maybe this angel this fallen angel is what it is to solely navigate the world just through ego consciousness devoid of the transcendent other yeah right yeah, super fascinating. Um, and then, you know, it's it's interesting too, like the monologues in it are just great. They're like so good. Um, I think too, you see a little bit of the biological salvation myth in there when they start, like essentially the the town doctor, the island doctor is like starting to notice that like the the people's blood are is like reactive to light. And she's like, what, what do I make of this? And then she brings in this idea of like the first time that germs were discovered. And I thought that was really great. Cause that's an interesting story that I think we need to retell. Mm-hmm. Um, because the guy that discovered for people that don't know, the guy that discovered germ theory, essentially just on a hunch, this invisible thing was somehow killing us. He ended up dying in an insane asylum, right? Like that's what we do to, to, to revolutionaries, you know, that's what we do to people that think differently. So I thought that was really great that they brought that story in. Um, and, but she, and it's interesting cause she is almost the, the, you know, she's like the anti-religious, but like science will be my salvation. You know, I can get through there. So you see literally every sort of variant of belief system. Mm-hmm. And then just to top it off at the end, the final monologue given by the Aaron Green person about death is like profoundly Hindu, <laughs> you know, but also has a, you know, she says, I am that I am. It's like got a Christ quote in there too so it's like way to just really wrap it all up I thought that was great yeah I mean there were so many different um I guess you would call them monologues like you said with just like these really deep existential like conversations that were happening like Riley would go to AA meetings and Mm -hmm. have like you know I think that it was like profound the things that they were discussing back and forth in those meetings 
Um, and then he talks to Aaron about death and what it's like when you die. And it's like, ugh, these things, I'm just like, man, I love these conversations. Yeah. Yeah. And they kind of represent the best of their belief system, which I thought was good with their monologues. And then also too, you have like the town drunk and you kind of see what happens when shame overtakes you. Oh my gosh. That, that character it was heartbreaking. It, it was absolutely heartbreaking because I think it was, again, I could see this in the priest too, like that, that goodness mm-hmm. that was like underneath all of this possession. But like the possession of the priest was the religious spirit. And then the possession of this, I feel like good hearted man was alcohol. It was just a different type of spirit. Right. And it's just like you see like these different quote unquote good people. I mean, you could just see the way that like this man was outcast Mm -hmm. in this town. And it was just, it was tragic to watch. It was like heartbreaking to watch. His dog dies. Yeah, that part just terrible. Yeah, and then just being confronted with all of his sins and, and the hurt that he's caused other people. Right. It's just tragic. And yeah. I think that that is the truth of trying to, to move towards your goodness. Mm. It's like it's tragic. It's so interesting because the end, like essentially they end up consumed in chaos at the end. And I think that that is, right, that's where that road goes. That's where that like I am everything road goes. It's like you, you can't possibly manipulate all of the variables of reality. Well, think about it like when you know if you're practically working with someone who deems themselves like affected by self-sabotage i mean that's playing out at the end of this series Mm -hmm. 100 percent. yeah right it's like all right i'm possessed like i think that i can control all of this i can control my fate like let's burn this shit down right like everything burns down and then it's like at the end there's no place to hide and that's kind of what self-sabotage is like when you're so cut off from these unconscious principles that are cause that are, that are like influencing all of this it's like you burn everything down and have almost zero foundation to stand on and i mean you see what happens at the end some people choose the light and i mean ultimately everyone gets burned up but like what's so fascinating is this bev chick ends up possessed by religious ideology and she's like well if we burn everything down everyone will have to come to the church and we'll be the ark we'll be noah's ark essentially she's like recreating that story in herself mm-hmm. and i think that well two things it's like you see this with cults like this is exactly what happens like when if you got if you've seen we were talking about this if you've seen uh waco the movie on the cult that ends up burning down in Waco like essentially like you end up believe this is like like I think the worst thing about literalism like it's like the scariest thing about literalism and the most dangerous thing is you end up thinking that you're living in that time that that's Mm -hmm. a literally what's happening in your life and that's what ends up happening to her so they burn all these houses down and you know what's fascinating is the Noah's Ark motif does play itself out because two kids end up living in a boat Right. Mm -hmm. And so two people survive the chaos in a boat. And that's like essentially what Noah's Ark is, right? Two people, two of every kind, end up becoming protected from the chaos. But it's not this like grand, like, I don't know, it's not this grand picture that Bev Keen has in her mind. It's this very humble 
barely surviving kind of innocence yeah that's floating atop the unconscious yeah right 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 I think it's interesting too that final scene is like how everyone faces their death is so fascinating because it's like that's that moment where there's like nowhere left to hide you have to come to grips with the fact that you're finite and like Bev Keen tries to accept it and she like ends up not being able to like, yeah everyone's she ends up trying like, to rage and like trying to bury herself and just yeah everyone's just kind of praising together like they come back together as a community to yeah. accept their fate it's like, well, that's the best you've got at that point, right? Mm. But then, you know, I just thought it was amazing, the end scene where she's just, like, on her hands and knees. And then I thought that she was just going to, like, lay down and kiss the ground and surrender. No, she starts fucking digging in the sand to try to hide. Right. And it's like, man, feels. Yeah, right. I think, too, there's something else I wanted to say, kind of jumping around now here at this point. But, like, if you watch, like... I really was paying attention to the evolution of his sermons and like there's a book on audible on Jim Jones and that whole cult and all that that happened. But when I read that or listened to that book on audible last summer, I got really, really fascinated by it because there's an idea in Christian thought and I was in seminary at the time that like you don't listen to your heart. You don't listen to yourself. You listen to God. Right. And I think that the, the middle ground is that if God doesn't come through your heart, it's like, where's it coming? Is it just your head? Are you listening? You worshiping the intellect? I think that's what ends up happening actually. But in any case, I got really interested in that phenomenon of cults. So I was like listening to Jim Jones because he was a preacher here. He's a Pentecostal preacher in the U S and gets grows. And then in the South then ends up moving to, I think like San Francisco and then ends up finally going to Africa where they all die. But if you listen to his early like sermons, there's not one heretical thing that would make you turn your head. Like I listened to two of them and I was just like, man, that's, you would listen to that sermon and you'd be like, man, that guy's filled with the spirit. Like he's got it. And it happens so quickly. Like if you're not connected to, if you're listening to someone talk as if they have your answers and you're not connected to your own compass, it happens so quickly how you get lost just following them. And that's essentially what happened in that. Is the part in the series where that starts to, like, come to an end is where the priest, like, can truly accept and embody his sins, right? Of, like, being, he's having this, like, secret life Mm -hmm. with this woman that he loves and he watches the daughter that he had die, Mm -hmm. right? And so it's, like, I think it's, and that's where he carries his daughter out and, Right, like Bev Keen comes up and is like, "What are you doing? Like, right. We need to go into the church." Right, and what's the dialogue there? It's like something akin to like, because he raises his voice. It's finally like he's like he's coming into right relationship. Right, I think with the light, Bev Keen is saying like, "You're the one. You you're supposed to lead this," and he's like, "No, God is supposed to lead this." Yeah, that yeah, right. That's the moment where he kind of wakes up and realizes. Like, because essentially what he had a plan is like he was going to convert these people in this church and then he had a whole system because they were going to wake up hungry and he was going to like, you know, so, but what ends up happening is he gets shot and then chaos breaks out in the church and Bev in her self-righteousness is like, open the doors, like let it go. And they end up terrorizing and burning down this whole island. But like, I think what happens is like when he comes back too, because you can't kill him except for the light is the only thing that can kill him. 
um, he comes back too. And he, I think at that point is recognizing like that he can't control this. Like it's not him because then right after that is when he's like, no, it's supposed to be God. I think Mm -hmm. he, that's where I was like, I think his heart was right. The whole, like in the right place, he just was possessed by, by this dark archetype and it brought him to this chaotic place. Yeah, I, I think it was just like masterfully done about the dangers of possession. You mm-hmm. know, and I mean, I see this with my clients. Like, like ideological possession, right? Yeah, and you just, it doesn't have to be this grand, like religious ideology, but those religious ideologies play themselves out in our psyche all the time. Yeah. Like we're possessed by these quote unquote fallen angels constantly and they're working through us and possessing our ego and it happens all the time and it's like I don't know I just see that play out in my clients and the dangers of that right and then to not have any at least respect or reverence for like you're not the master of this ship Mm -hmm. like you have no idea what you're messing with right now Mm mm-hmm like that to me is like the fascination of the story. It's like, man, it yeah. is like the ego being relativized. That's what the story I feel like it's about. Totally. Through the grand powers of the unconscious and the darkness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and then the final thing too, I guess the last thing I'll say is really fascinating because you were like, I think looking it up and it's like, what is it? Midnight is the time that you're the closest to the unconscious, mm-hmm. to the archetypal realm. Mm-hmm. And so I thought... Symbolically, yeah. Symbolically, yeah. So I thought that was really fascinating too. Yeah, it's like the time where um, you're most susceptible to entrance, mm. right? Where the veil is the thinnest per se. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And so the fact that the whole motif starts to move in that direction is just on point. 10 out of 10. Right. I'm, I'm sure if you've listened to us talk about it, I don't know if you want to watch it for the first time now, but I, I would recommend watching it and then, you know, exploring it through your own psyche. Like this is just what we kind of took away from it, but I th- feel like it's so vast and broad and objective that like you could take something completely different and just have a super interesting time navigating it. Yeah, and I think if you want to really understand any story, you put yourself in every character's place, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Rather than be like, well, I'm not like that. I wouldn't do that. It's like, but you are. Yeah. And this is where it goes. Yeah, so before we hop off, just wanted to do a final kind of promo with a deep end. Oh, for the book club? For our book club coming up November 14th. We're doing the book He and She, books He and She by Robert Johnson. So we're going to be unpacking the Parsifal Grail myth and then the myth of Psyche and Eros. And in those, we're kind of dissecting masculine and feminine psychology. So um, something akin to like kind of what we've done here, just symbolically take a story or a myth and just unpack it and see what moves through each and every psyche in the book club. So yeah. I'm super excited. Yeah, and Robert Johnson does that masterfully. So. Yeah. Um, but you can head to the show notes and find the link, and it's pay what you want, so you get to choose the price. Thanks, guys.